0: Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel
1: podcast.
0: I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frinino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. It's easy to overlook most of Billy Joel's The Bridge Tour concert dates from 1986 and 1987. The shows, which spanned four continents, were in support of one of Billy's arguably weakest albums.
1: Meanwhile, these dates are eclipsed by the handful of landmark shows he played in the USSR at the tail end of the tour. But it turns out, there's enough going on to warrant a closer look. Perhaps most notably, we know now, that these were the last dates to feature the core lords of 52nd street lineup and the shows featured sleek and subtle state-of-the-art stage and sound designs
0: there's more than meets the eye with these mid-80s concerts join us as we dive deep into the bridge tour from 1986 to 1987.
1: The year is 1986. Well, not this year. But we're talking about a very specific tour that began in 1986 and went through 1987. And that is the Bridge Tour. And it's an interesting one to
0: talk about because arguably, you know, the Bridge is one of Billy's weaker albums. As we were putting this together, I sort of came around to the idea that it's almost the street life serenade of the 80s.
1: It's probably the one album of the 80s that he wanted to put out the least. Yeah. And at the same time, the tour,
0: though, was in a lot of ways very successful. I mean, it was like a victory lap for him. And, you know, it turned out to be a victory lap for the Lords of 52nd Street as well, because much of the core band, they'd be gone before the next album, which was Stormfront, came out. And meanwhile, the album had a whole bunch of real high-profile guests. The, the tour was massive. It, it spanned how many continents? Four?
1: Yeah, I believe so, over the course of the two years. Yeah, we,
0: I think we saw him back in Australia, saw him in Japan. And, you know, of course, he capped it all off with those legendary Russia shows that we talked about a few episodes ago. Uh, and again, a few episodes after that with Brad Lee.
1: Yeah, that was such a monumental tour. It's hard to believe, when you put it in context, that was six shows, Of what was about 150 shows. This is the longest to date by far.
0: And and we'll get into set design wardrobe and things like that later. But it's also the easily the most 80s looking. Like everybody
1: was really Miami Vice out for this one. If the Innocent Man tour, there was a little David Bowie going on with a couple of the guys, they were squarely in Miami Vice territory. Yeah, right. Calling Don Johnson.
0: So let's start with the album first. And we don't want to talk about too much about the album. We'll cover that in depth uh, on another episode later on. But of course, it's the album that spawned the tour, so we'll get into it a little. The Bridge came out July 9th, 1986. And as Michael said, it was really the album he wanted to put out the least in the 80s. Uh, By now, he was married to Christy Brinkley. They recently had their daughter, Alexa Ray Joel. And he really wanted to be home with his family, uh, not back in the recording studio. And so between An Innocent Man and The Bridge, the record company put out Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2 with two new songs. And we know now that was really a stopgap to buy Billy a little time before he had to sort of like drag himself back into the studio. And he'll go on record after this to say that he really didn't like this album. He said uh, the lyrics for Running on Ice were crap. Temptation, although it sounds like it's about a woman, it's really... Just about the fact that he didn't want to leave his daughter and go to work, basically. Features the core band, Billy, obviously, Liberty DeVito on drums, Russell Javers and David Brown on guitar, Doug Stegmaier on bass, and now Mark Rivera on saxophone. And this would be Mark's second album with the band.
1: This is also an album that saw a number of special guests. We had Cyndi Lauper, who co-wrote and sang on Code of Silence. And this would mark the first co-write on a Billy Joel record, and actually the last. So, you had Code of Silence again with her, Baby Grand with Ray Charles, and Getting Closer with Steve Winwood.
0: So, here's how I look at this Steve Winwood was clearly a big influence on Billy Joel. And if you watch the Bridge promo stuff, though, I think it's Lib that was sort of the most over the moon about the whole thing. Like, Billy's joking and that he knows all the traffic records back and forth, that Lib even knows all the mistakes.
1: It was even said that in Liberty's high school yearbook, a friend wrote Lib. Keep playing the drums, and maybe one day you'll play with Steve Winwood.
0: Tell <laughs> that guy he's got to go buy a lottery ticket, man. How cool is that? Yeah. And then Ray Charles is another huge influence on Billy. And what a coup it was for a guy like Billy, you know, relative to their ages. And the, the fact that Ray was obviously putting out albums as Billy Joel was just learning the piano to get one of your real heroes. I mean, you know, Steve Winwood was almost a contemporary, pretty much a contemporary of Billy. But Ray Charles, like, that would have been the legend. And then it sounds derivative to say, oh, you know, it's nice that Cyndi Lauper was there. But I like the fact that it was Cyndi Lauper, you know, another real strong New York kind of voice and a sign of the times. Yeah, You know, she was big in the 80s, and that really ties everything together there. So you got, you know, you got Ray Charles would be the 50s, early 60s. Steve Winwood 60s and 70s. Cyndi Lauper is the 80s. So Billy Joe kind of managed to bring a good couple of decades into an album that really sounds out of its time.
1: And while... Well- on this record, there is a lot of great moments. There's a almost a distant vibe with it. I don't know. There's something about it where you could almost feel like things are starting to come apart,
0: which as we find out they were, but nobody knew it at the time. And then really quick, I just want to mention a couple other session musicians or guys that played as session musicians on this that are musicians, maybe our listeners are going to pick up on these names. So this one, I had no idea, but it was uh, Vinnie Kaliuta, drummer extraordinaire on Baby Grand. And I, I didn't actually believe it at first because I read it on Wikipedia and I'm like, oh, it's this stupid Wikipedia. So I went back and I scoured the Baby Graham video for like that half a second clip and I'm like, yep, yeah, that's Vinny, okay. And then uh, Ron Carter, legendary bassist, is also on uh, Big Man on Mulberry Street. Michael Brecker, also on Big Man on Mulberry Street. And as we know, Michael Brecker was also the one that recorded the updated saxophone solo for New York State of Mind. That's on Greatest Hits Volume 1. And then Peter Hewlett was on backing vocals, running on ice. Peter Hewlett went on tour with Billy quite a few times, right? The Bridge Tour, which we're talking about today. And then again, last play at Shea. And then Neil Jason plays bass on Getting Closer. And I think you added that one in, Michael. Who's Neil Jason?
1: Neil is a very prolific session bass player. Just a couple names that are on the list of artists he's played with. Harry Chapin, Debbie Harry, Janice Ian, Joe Jackson, Michael Jackson, Mm -hmm. Mick Jagger, Bob James, Cyndi Lauper, John Lennon, Nils Lofgren, Paul McCartney, Ted Nugent, Mm -hmm. Diana Ross, Paul Schaefer, Carly Simon, Paul Simon, Pete Townsend, Eddie Van Halen, Charlie Watts. So he's worked with a number of the upper echelon musicians over the years.
0: And with that, the album was out and the tour began.
1: But before we go any further, let's dip into the emails and see what our listeners have going on.
0: I have two, actually, uh, this time from the UK. The first one is from Rick Neal. He writes, Hi there, Michael and Jack. Just wanted to reach out to thank you so much for the work you do on the podcast. I discovered it here in the UK at the start of our first COVID lockdown. And it's really helped me get through homeschooling my kids, not gigging, and generally helped me stay positive in difficult times. I've always loved Billy, and your show has given me an excuse to dig even deeper. I now listen to the CW Post when I go for my run every morning. I'm right up to date, and I'm always excited to see a new episode arrive. I'm a musician myself and thought you might dig this. It's the billiest thing I've ever put out. I even recorded it that way with piano, vocal, drums, and double bass recorded live in the studio. We overdubbed Hammond and Tambourine later. I reckon you'll dig it anyway. Thanks for the good work. Keep it up. It's very much appreciated here. Thanks, and don't take any shit from anybody. Rick.
1: First of all, Rick, love that sign-off. It's so cool to see musicians who have been inspired by Billy doing their thing. So, uh, yeah, keep at it. Sounds great, man.
0: Yeah, it was funny because we started recording this at the beginning of 2020, right? You know, when the word coronavirus was maybe the last paragraph of the fifth page of the newspaper, if anybody reads it uh, in print anymore. This kind of defines that year for me was taking a break from all the lunacy and doing this podcast. And so it's really great to hear that, you know, that it really helped you out as well. Now, we thought a lot about this. Rick, and it's uh, R-I-C-N-E-A-L-E, because you can find him on Spotify. Rick sent us a song, as we mentioned in the email. We decided we're gonna play a quick clip from it. We're gonna give our quick thoughts on it, but we're not doing this again. So you other guys who think you're gonna grease us up and then we're gonna play all your songs.
1: Yeah, so Rick got lucky, he got in just under the gate closing. Yeah.
0: So you know, we just respect this guy's hustle. He was the first one to think to do it, so he gets his song on there. So let's take a quick listen to What She Deserves by Rick Neal.
1: control all the mess You left a that I have
0: to forgive I just gotta hope that she gets what she deserves Hope it's exactly what she bargained for when she decided to ban against me For what's left of my heart I
1: hope she gets what she deserves
0: Cool, man. I dig it. It's a great song. I love the vibe on it. Not always crazy about that 6'8 feel, but I think you guys really did a nice job with it. Stand-up bass, uh, the double bass sounds great. Gotta say, I hear some Elvis Costello on this. Maybe a little more Elvis Costello than Billy Joel. Yeah, I can hear that. But overall, a great song. And Rick, thanks for writing in.
1: Absolutely. Well done. And our next one's from Robert Albright, and the subject is thanks from a fan. And he writes... Hi, guys. Just a not so short email to send my compliments on an awesome podcast for Billy fans. I discovered the musical genius that is Billy Joel in college around the time Songs in the Attic was released in the early 80s. The power and raw energy of those performances drew me right in, and I've been a diehard fan ever since. It wasn't long before I attended my first concert at the Philly Spectrum in 1982, and I've seen him on just about every US tour since then in whatever city was within striking distance of where I lived, including Baltimore, DC. L.A., Vegas. MSG is still on the bucket list. The more I discovered about his music, the more I was blown away what a triple threat he was. Excelling as a songwriter, pianist, and performer. As an amateur pianist who has lost interest in lessons and reading the dots, he motivated me back into playing, and I started to tackle his catalog on the piano, which really gave me an appreciation of his playing and songwriting with such complex and unique chord voicings. I've been playing his stuff ever since... And to this day, I'm still discovering new nuances and gems as I dig into the piano parts. So no surprise when I discovered your podcast in the middle of last year. I dove in and binge listened just recently catching up with the current releases. I'm so impressed that you've hit on just about every bit of interesting Billy trivia and career minutiae that I've always wondered if anyone else had noticed but me. From DeVito, where are you going, and say goodbye to Hollywood, to moving out, opening with the cadence of Billy's coughing habit. In closing with Doug's Corvette recording. You guys are nailing it. One show suggestion occurred to me. How about a review of Billy's award show appearances and speeches? I think you've touched on that, but there are some great ones like his 1991 Grammy Legend Award appearance. Apologies for the long email, but thought you might want some background on who's out here listening. Keep up the great work. Best, Robert Albert.
0: Awesome, Rob. Thanks a lot. And look, you're talking to two guys that talk for about two hours every other week about Billy Joel and then edit it down to an hour. or So, so yeah, no email is too long for us.
1: No, absolutely. We welcome it. So
0: it's funny you mentioned the awards. We actually have that scheduled already for April. Uh, So stick around for a couple more months and we'll definitely get that for you. But yeah, it's fun to hear when people are big listening to this. I think that's really cool. I've tried to do that with podcasts and honestly, I usually can't, I get like two or three episodes into one and then I have to put it down for a while. So it's really cool to hear that people are able to, like, just jump right in from episode to episode. And, you know, it's, it's funny about the complex and unique chord voicings. You know, anybody that's played any Billy Joel, they'll talk a lot about that. One guy I know, he said it's like Stevie Wonder, just like in the off-kilter things he does in the complex changes. You know, he makes things like
1: that. And that's one thing that I've always loved about Billy. We've touched on it before, but to the initial listen, it seems like a simple pop tune. But there's so much complexity that really you don't uncover right away.
0: Yeah. So it's always great to hear when other people key into that as well. With that, let's dive into this episode's main course, the bridge tour that began in 1986. Now, for starters, for this tour, we have some additional information that may be a little hard to find. Michael's got the original tour program from '86.
1: I have every program from every tour in the US at least. Now, Stormfront going forward, I bought up the show, but this was an eBay find along with the older ones. It's really cool to go through it because there is a lot of information that really hasn't been published since. There's a spotlight on Phil Ramone. There's a great article we'll dip into with Brian Ruggles and Steve Cohen about the stage and set design. And it's got a great list of the road crew as well.
0: Yeah, and as we've talked about on other episodes, you know, the sound crew, the road crew, these guys are like another tight-knit family in and of themselves. A lot of them were and had been with Billy for decades. So it's great to see them get there doing this. You know, I was never one to buy those programs, so it's fun now when we're doing this, even just to hear you, you know, Michael will send me pictures, he'll take a picture on his cell phone and send it over, and I get to read like three or four of these paragraphs. And uh, this is Root Beer Rag, or is that something different that we're looking at now?
1: The front of it, it says Root Beer Rag, special edition, Billy Joel, The Bridge Tour. Oh, okay. And the photo of him is, if you remember the Bridge album, on the back, there's a picture of him kind of leaning against the wall. That's the photo on the main cover. All right, let's get into the
0: nuts and bolts of this tour really quick. So it's 146 shows in all, starting in
1: 1986. September 29th, 1986, in Glens Falls, New York, at the Glens Falls Civic Center.
0: And we end November 28th, 1987, in Christchurch, New Zealand, at Lancaster Park. And there's a quick footnote to this, where Billy played a benefit on December 13th, 87, at Madison Square Garden. Uh, He did New York State of Mind there. But in terms of the tour, uh, he wrapped it up in New Zealand. And before that, we found them just all over North America, all over the U.S., through Canada. And then abroad, there were a bunch of shows at Wembley, Russia. You know, the Russian dates were part of this. And then Australia, Japan, New Zealand. And that was called the Australasian Encore Tour. So it's sort of like a sub name to the larger tour.
1: Yeah, because they did a run into either New Zealand or Australia once earlier in 87. And it was such a hit, they came back later in the year. And what we see
0: here is a bit of variation, which I think is true of a lot of his tours. There's a little variation in the set list at the beginning. And then halfway through, or towards the end especially, he really locks in, as he often does, to playing almost the same thing every night. Even so, you know, you look at the seven-show run in New Jersey at the Brendan Byrne Arena, he actually pretty much does the same set list almost every night.
1: That's actually kind of Because if you're going to do multiple nights at the same venue, you yeah. switch it up a little more. But this run is fairly consistent.
0: And there's a couple of times on this tour as well, he actually does Piano Man very early on in the set.
1: I think this might have been around the time where Piano Man dropped off a few times.
0: Oh, yeah. I, as we've discussed, especially before The Stranger, Piano Man was kind of just another song. You know, we'd see it third or fourth in a set list, and that's on bootlegs and things like that. It wasn't until later on that it became the big encore song, you know, the, the big closer. And true to form, we see it here, third and fourth a couple times on this tour.
1: And, you know, I like that. I would love to see him come out again and do some of these songs that have been the standard closures for the last 20 years. I'd love to see them get bumped back earlier in the set like they used to be. Even doing that would kind of shake it up a little bit. There's something nice about Piano Man early in the set.
0: Yeah, it makes you wonder what he's going to end with then. That's true. So let's look at this first show. Again, this is September 29th, '86. And the set list is Running on Ice, This is the Time, A Matter of Trust, Baby Grand, Big Man on Mulberry Street. So almost the entire first side of the bridge. And after Big Man on Mulberry Street, we have that Greatest Hits Volume 2 edition, You're Only Human, then Piano Man, then Angry Young Man, Moving Out, Just the Way You Are, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Only the Good Die Young, Big Shot, Stiletto, You May Be Right, Sometimes a Fantasy, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, Allentown, Pressure. Good night, Saigon, an innocent man, longest time, this night, tell her about it, uptown girl, and he ends with keeping the faith. That's a mammoth set list, man. That's that's pretty good.
1: It looks like it's about three or four songs longer than quite a few of the other shows on this tour. Easily.
0: So now let's jump ahead and let's go back to those shows in Jersey because those were pretty indicative of what the shows would look like for a while. And so those encores uh, was held for most of them. Then of course, you know, there's a couple variations here and there.
1: Yeah, and so May 1st of 87, again, we're at the Brendan Byrne Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. So this set list goes a matter of trust, pressure, you're Only Human, Piano Man, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Allentown, Good Night Saigon, Prelude Angry Young Man, Don't Ask Me Why, Big Man on Mulberry Street, Baby grand. An Innocent Man, The Longest Time, Only the Good Die Young, Still Rock and Roll to Me, Sometimes a Fantasy, You May Be Right, and then the encore begins Uptown Girl and Keeping the Faith, And then Encore 2, Big Shot. And
0: as you're reading this off, Michael, you know, we mentioned in our last episode when we read off people telling us about their first concerts, you know, how many of them were seeing Billy for the first time in 1984 on the From Piano Man to an Innocent Man tour. So looking back at these set lists today, you're like, wow, you know, your encore is Uptown Girl and Keeping the Faith. But that was the album that started his next cycle of listeners. So it made a lot of sense then that he represents them in those slots there.
1: Those songs were huge and still kind of fresh so it makes sense seeing those in the uh the ending slot for sure these sets lists are pretty interesting
0: before we dive any deeper into them well as we dive deeper into them i just want to note a couple songs that crop up a few times but not too often on the tour we mentioned stiletto before that was at the beginning uh, we also see summer highland falls a few times we see zanzibar a few times and innocent man crops up a couple times And, you know, even though we mentioned that Innocent Man seemed to be the album that earned him a new generation of fans, I do think Innocent Man, the song, is a real tough one to do in concert. Yeah, it's slow. It's long. Uh, It's a good listen at home, I think. It wouldn't be very long before he has Crystal on stage, and she's taking the high notes for him on that one. Ballad of Billy the Kid pops up a couple times in the shows early on.
1: Speaking of Zanzibar, I'm curious because Billy didn't have horn players. I mean, he had Mark Rivera playing sax but no trumpet players. So I'm wondering what they did with that big jazz breakdown. David Lebolt was doing a lot of like horn step, like Big Man on Mulberry Street and stuff like that. So there were some horn patches on the keyboard. So I wonder if they were doing something there.
0: Yeah, if anybody's got a bootleg from 86 hanging around that uh, Mike Stutz somehow does not have, you know... Please let us a mic know.
1: Or if any of you saw this tour and saw him do Zanzibar, do you remember it, you know? So you bring up a good point there.
0: You mentioned Dave LeBeau. Let's talk about who was on this
1: tour. Uh, because obviously the
0: core F- Lords of 52nd Street lineup was there, but they weren't the only guys on stage this this, uh, this
1: time around. So here was the band on the Bridge tour. Obviously we had Billy. We had Liberty DeVito on drums. Doug Stagmeyer on bass. Russell Javers on rhythm guitar and vocals. David Brown on lead guitar. Mark Rivera on horns, keyboards, background vocals as well. And then we had Dave LaBolt returning on keyboards and synthesizers. George Sims and Peter Hewlett were the background vocalists. And then we also had a replacement on the Russian tour. We had Kevin Dukes on lead guitar in place of David Brown. We introduce the guys in the band. On the saxophone, Mark Rivera. Lead guitar David Brown. On the synthesizers, Dave Amadeus Labolt. On rhythm guitar, Russell Jabbers. On the Fender bass guitar, and on the upright bass, Doug Stegmaier.
0: And on the drums, Liberty DeVito. And as we mentioned, they look really 80s on this tour. Now, Doug in particular had a blue guitar, if I'm not mistaken. A blue bass, right?
1: Yeah, I believe so. I th- I think it was a Telecaster bass with a blue finish. And Liberty also had blue shells on his Tama drum kit. So it was a very blue stage setup going on. And that was inspired by the blue artwork of the bridge.
0: Yeah, I just think it's notable with Doug because he played Blondie for so long. And, you know, that's actually the bass that Malcolm Gold will play on many of the Lord shows. But let's take a look at these. Uh, Yeah, Doug's looking really 80s on this. You can see some mullets coming around here.
1: Oh, especially, you know, the photos of the guys. I'd say the guy who has the most 80s look at the photos here would be uh, Dave LeBolt. I'm going to show you this, Jack. Yeah, he's teasing me
0: with this program again. (laughs) Oh, wow. That shirt looks like the opening from Save by the Bell. That's amazing. Now, what I liked about this addition to one of the paragraphs you teased me with uh, via text earlier today uh, was a great feature on Brian Ruggles, the sound engineer. And I like what he said about, you know, you don't really think about it. Uh, the sort of there's a challenge to mixing for Billy Joel is... Because his music is so varied, right? So if you're the sound guy for ACDC, you kind of keep everything in one setting. You know, every song is four on the floor drums and Angie's young guitar. But with Billy, you're going from, well, at this point, really eighty sounding pop to seventy singer songwriter to kind of, you know, balls out rockers and everything in between. And so he's got to think a lot about bringing out the best in each song and also making it consistent to the live audience. Because he says in that article, and maybe you could find the exact quote in there, he says he goes for album quality sound even
1: in a live venue. Should we read it? It's not that long. Yeah, go for it. So this is a great feature with Brian Ruggles and Steve Cohen called Creating the Sound and Look of the Bridge Tour. So this really kind of sets the scene for... How they put everything together because it was really the two of them that are responsible for what you see and hear uh, on the stage at the billy joel shows in sound lighting and stage design the bridge tour is a distinct departure from anything billy joel has done in previous tours the intricacies of the production concepts from rough ideas to completed presentation were handled by longtime friends brian ruggles who has produced and mixed billy's live sound since a 1971 appearance at the gaslight in greenwich village and steve cohen who, since 1974, has designed approximately 2,000 of Billy's shows across the world. It's the cleanest stage we've ever done, explains Cohen, 32, the architect of stage and lighting for other performers like Hart, Hall & Oates, and Don Henley. We wanted to create an image so that when you first walked into the arena, you'd never figure out how the hell any music can come out of that setup. On the last tour, there was a lot of stuff cluttering up the stage, and in most large concert halls, 80% of the seats in the house are bad. We wanted to make these seats the best in the house. The challenge was that Billy likes to play a show from all parts of his stage. It's really a 360-degree show, but not strictly in the round, and that the stage is in the front of the arena, not in the middle. The solution? We put all the monitors and amps underneath the stage with PA speakers on top, so that there's nothing up there but four keyboards, the performers, and their microphones. Moreover, continues Cohen, the stage design itself guarantees a perfectly unobstructed view from any seat in the house. Instead of levels and ramps of previous tours, the stage is designed in inclines of compound angles, creating an effect of gently sloping hills from four to eight feet high. One day, Brian and I picked up one of Brian's wedding invitations, and it turned out that the angles on the envelope were identical to the ones we wanted to use. I called Billy out at his house to discuss it. He says, I'd love to talk about it, but we've got to go tuna fishing. So we went out on his boat, caught 420 pounds of bluefin tuna, and he approved the idea without even seeing a drawing. Later, when Tom Strahan of FM Productions came over to my house to build a model, I was looking at a poster of the LP cover of The Bridge with its kind of abstract cubist artwork. We put a piece of the album cover artwork on the model, hoping that the stage would subliminally remind you of the LP cover. The lighting, which consists of 12 spots, 10 above the stage, two out in the house, is a classic case of less is more, consisting of 219 lamps, 30 of which are small but highly effective multi-cell lamps with 10 different colors in each, providing enormous color saturation. Cohen operates manually from his board, throwing lights with great theatrics. Indeed, because of his close involvement with the development of Billy's music, he plays the role of director of The Billy Joel Show, In the truest sense, blocking movement with light, coordinating wardrobe, fussing, experimenting. The band never sees what the audience sees, explains drummer Liberty DeVito. And we have total trust in Steve. It's like when you're a kid and you're going off to school, you ask your mother, how do I look? That's what Steve does for us. What Brian Ruggles does is create audiophile quality live sound. In this case, in conjunction with the new look of the show and the institution of high-tech digital systems like MIDI. We've always mixed the sound at our shows to sound as close to the record as possible, he says. And the challenge has always been going from number to number in the sequence of the show, from a rock song to an intimate vignette like Piano Man, because we've always organized the songs to ebb and flow with the drama and contrast. The contrast modulation of style and emotion in the show, he points out, requires constant changes in the mix, which range from subtle to drastic all performed by Ruggles at his Soundcraft Series 4 40-channel board Out in the House, which has a digital crossover by Audio Analyst, used for the first time on a Billy Joel tour. But, as Brian's work is reflected in superior live albums like Billy Joel's Songs in the Attic and the Simon and Garfunkel reunion concert in Central Park, as well as their stadium tour of the world, he's more than equal to the task. What makes this show so much fun is all the new technology to work with for the first time, Billy prefers the organic feel of his acoustic piano to the KX-88 electronic keyboard. So we put his Yamaha Baby Grand through the MIDI. This way he gets the feeling, but we can still route the music into anything we've programmed. It's all controlled by Dave LeBolt. From the ocean on This Is The Time, to the glass breaking on You May Be Right, and the horns on Tell Her About It. Because the monitors are underneath the stage, the band hears itself, their gratings in the stage. They all made faces when we first told them about it, but when they heard it, they flipped. We've blended the old with the new, and the result is a big sound. So big, it comes right out and hits you in the face.
0: You know, ordinarily, I wouldn't say, hey man, let's just read a whole article on the podcast. But, two things about this. Number one, I don't think you can find that online. So, yeah, I hope you all enjoy the treat. Uh, but number two, uh, and it is a cool stage design, but what's great about it when you look at it is that nothing pops. So it's kind of true to what he said. It's all very subtle. It's so much so you don't even realize that there are no amps on stage. Because, again, when you look at, like, Houston 79, when you look at Live from Long Island, it's like there's a lot of stuff going on on that stage. I don't mind it. I, I think it makes it look intimate, really, with a lot of stuff on there. And I think it's certainly a sign of the times in the 80s to have that sort of super slick, like futuristic look like that. But what's interesting is to think about like, if, you know, if you've ever had seats behind the stage at an arena show, if you're lucky, you get someone like Springsteen who will run around the back, you know. But you don't always get that. And so, yeah, to have one where everything is gradient and there's nothing on stage. So, like, wherever you are, nothing is obstructed. That's pretty cool. And, and also the greats, so then all the monitors will come through. Yeah,
1: I mean, they must have been really freaking out. I'm looking at a photo from the tour book of the empty stage with the gear on it and yeah the only monitor i'm seeing anywhere is liberties
0: yeah that makes sense you, you probably can't get a drummer to hear something from that far away
1: yeah it's got to hit them just so you know
0: yeah and you know this is i mean what 20 25 years at least before in-ear monitors were a thing
1: oh yeah it's i i don't think they got in-ear monitors till the some point in the mid late 90s i would say i would say maybe even later yeah one thing that i note with this. All the keyboards stay on stage the entire time. I haven't watched the London Innocent Man video in a while to see what's really going on behind the scenes there. But I remember on the Nylon Curtain tour, uh, live from Long Island, there's those positions where the CP80 is and then the Fender rows, And they're constantly pulling gear on and off when that's not being used. On the bridge tour here, you've got the two keyboards on the pedestal that Dave LeBolt typically used, and then you've got two Yamaha CP80s. All four of those keyboards and the piano are permanently positioned on stage throughout the whole night.
0: Yeah. And I I really think it's something that Billy approved this without seeing the design. I mean, be it while he was out on his boat too. Can you imagine like signing off on your next millions of dollars to create your next tour? And you know, this thing is going to go out for almost 150 shows. And you're just like, hey man, yeah, that... That sounds good. I trust you because that's really what it was. They'd been working together so long. And we've touched on this before, you know, by then, first of all, guys like Brian and Steve had the latitude to do this because they were working with one artist uh, for so long that they were able to stay on the cutting edge of technology and trends and even create their own innovations because they had that trust and that long running rapport with the artist. Whereas, you know, if you're, if you're just hopping on somebody else's tour for the first time, you know, you're not going to rock that boat. You're just going to keep everything nice and oiled. But I didn't know Brian Ruggles did the concert in Central Park for Simon and Garfunkel either.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that as well. And, you know, David Brown played that show. Too, oh, yeah. So there's some cross-pollination of Billy's band. Yeah, David Brown was the uh, one of the guitar players.
0: Huh. And, you know, there's another piece of, I don't know if you call it synchronicity, but it's notable, I suppose. You know, they make mention of Brian Ruggles' Uh, And the wedding invitation, right? So the story of when Liberty DeVito got to play on a Paul McCartney song and they called him up and they were like, you have to come to the studio tomorrow night. And he's like, well, who's it for? And they said, I can't tell you who, you just have to show up. And it was Brian Ruggles' rehearsal dinner. Then he found out it was Paul McCartney and he's like, well, I got it. Of course you have to go. So of course, you know, he thought he was going to skip the rehearsal dinner and go and then it turned out that the rehearsal dinner got moved anyway. So Brian never
1: found out, probably until Lib published a book. That's so funny you mentioned that. I didn't even make that connection, how Brian's wedding played a part in these two stories here. I mean, that's so funny that it was the invitations that sparked the idea for the stage design. And it was that very wedding that caused Liberty to panic about this Paul McCartney. <laughs> session. Yeah. And
0: oh, sidebar about Liberty. If you're not on the Billy Joel Retold Facebook page, you got to get over there because he chimes in from time to time and it's fantastic every time. He's either got something really funny to say or he just gives you like this other little nugget of information.
1: All these little nuggets of stuff that blow your mind. You're like, oh, my God, I never knew that about this song or this. Tour. Yeah. It's yeah crazy. That You never knew before that comes out. So it's really cool. I'm looking at this tour book. I wonder at what point he dropped it. But Liberty at least early on in the bridge tour had a full rack system where the symbols were mounted from above, you know, where it was like a cube because at some point by the time we got to London and Russia in 87, that was gone and the symbols were mounted from the middle rack. Right,
0: but when you have those, you end up with the symbols straight, right? They're kind of parallel. You don't have that slant to them.
1: Right, they just kind of yeah. hang.
0: That I don't like uh playing them like that. I mean, first of all, I think I'm just going to crack them because I'm going to broadside, you know, and I don't have a uh, Billy Joel tour money to replace a crack Zildjian cymbal.
1: I've never liked how that felt or it looked. I know that's popular in metal drumming as well. Like yeah. Megadeth's drummers over the years have used that quite a bit, but I think it just looks kind of funky to me. I don't know. So as I'm flipping through the bridge tour book here, there's band bios that are all pretty cool, but I noticed on Dave LeBolt's, he talks a bit about the gear and it says for this tour, LeBolt plays a key role coordinating all the latest technology available. And the quote is we're using a MIDI system which provides digital control from any of these four keyboards on stage. Two Yamaha KX-88s, a midi CP-80, and Billy's midi Grand Piano. Prior to the tour, David spent three weeks working up to 14 hours a day programming sounds and effects that have made his keyboard like the computer Hal in 2001. At the flick of a foot switch, he sends signals that go off stage through a matrix switcher down to any of some 20 odd synthesizers underneath the stage. The sampling instruments, emulator two and AKAI Yamaha TX modules, Boyetra, and memory Moog synths and special effects units give you everything from the brass section of big Man on Mulberry street to the factory whistle of Allentown. This is the first time we've used a lot of this stuff. He explains It's a bit like flying a plane through fog because everything is off stage. But even though this is Billy's most high tech tour to date, the show isn't about technology. It's about Billy's songs. The equipment just gives him more in the palette of sound to choose from.
0: Yeah. And for reference, I'm pretty sure you could do all that stuff with a MacBook Pro by now. (laughs)
1: 100%. It's amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, but then again, you know, they were figuring this out. And I guess that goes hand-in-hand with the idea that they were keeping the stage as clear as possible so that all the stuff was going down. And so if I heard correctly, so he only had one set of keys on stage, but all the switches were happening downstairs. So you didn't have the Rick Wakeman setup or like, you know, even the David Rosenthal setup where he's got a couple of different keys. You just see one keyboard making all these sounds, but it's not the Casio with the 20 buttons and you're pushing one and you go from one to the other. They're actually doing it beneath. That's kind of ingenious.
1: It is. On the records, they were at the forefront with a lot of the digital technology, and it goes to show that they were wide net, same wavelength on the tour yeah, too. Yeah,
0: really. And what an egoless effort that was to put together such an intricate set design, you know, the design of which is made for you to absolutely not notice it. Like I brought up ACDC before. When I saw ACDC, there was a 50-foot gold statue of Angus coming at you. Like, I'm talking like, actually, it looked like it was made of gold, you know? Uh, don't get me wrong, it was, it was great. But this is the exact opposite, you know?
1: Yeah, I do love that the whole set is for you to not notice but feel and to have a subliminal tie-in to the record, which, unless you're looking at it from certain angles, you don't necessarily notice it off the bat. I just love all the little subtleties that went into this.
0: So if you're curious as to what this actually looked like, there are a couple of video artifacts that you can look up now. I'll start off with the one that... Actually doesn't show you this, but it's one that's out there. There's a video of Billy on
1: David Letterman. Apparently he sat in all night. What's cool about that one too, is it's not Billy's band. There's David Brown and Billy. That's it.
0: So he does a matter of trust in this video. And Dave mentions in passing that he's been sitting in with the band all night.
1: Our uh, next guest tonight has been sitting in with the band all evening. It's uh, very exciting to have him here. He, of course, is responsible for this album. It's entitled The Bridge, as well as many, many others. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello once again to Billy Joel. (laughs)
0: And there's a pretty decent live show from Philadelphia, Pro Shot 1986 on YouTube. I mean, I'm trying to get a gauge on this. It looks Pro Shot, but visually it's a pretty bad transfer. You know, it definitely looks like it was VHS, but you could see for sure uh, Lib's blue drums. You know, Billy's got that gray Miami Vice suit. If you get a good shot of the stage, yeah, Liberty does not have the rack there. You know, there's a couple wide shots and it does go up to a peak, you know, where the drums are obviously in the middle. But then from afar, and even on a kind of grainy VHS transfer, you do get the feeling that it's a lot sleeker than the other designs. This is also where they go into the longest time. They drop the lights, and it talks for a moment or two. And that sort of gives everybody, I suppose, the opportunity to huddle up around there and get the handheld mics and get all set up um, and do this a cappella number. October 13th, eighty-six. So somebody in the comments has pointed out that this video must be a bootleg copy of the original one that was meant for
1: release. Oh yeah, maybe. There's another great one out there, which was done just before the Russian tour on YouTube. It's labeled Billy Joel MTV Passport, London, England, 1986. But this is actually 87. And one of the commenters mentions that the footage is from July 15th, 87, just before the Russian tour. And what's hilarious about this is it's Park documentary, park concert footage. So there's footage from the show in London, which looks very similar to the Russian shows. And there's just some funny, candid footage as well. I think there's an interview with Liberty in his hotel room talking about some souvenirs he bought and just some touristy stuff. And it's just some really fun, candid stuff that MTV did for Europe in 87. But this was just warming up for the shows in Russia.
0: Yeah, you can get some good views of the stage on this one, too. And, you know, obviously the quality here is a little better than the Philadelphia one. The center of the stage is a little more vivid and pronounced between him doing Matter of Trust on David Letterman on this one. Now, I got to say, it's a great opener. I think Opinion is sort of divided on that song, but I always kind of liked it. I
1: think it's a nice groover. Yeah, I like it too. I'm always excited when that makes it back into the set list because he doesn't play it a ton anymore, but maybe it's just because it's kind of a mid-tempo song. It's not like the frenetic energy of Angry Young Man or Epicness of Miami and all those classic openers that we've gotten to know. But I don't know, something about this song just to start it off with a fun mid-tempo rocker is, I think it's cool.
0: When we used to play, we used to always hate doing that one, uh, doing the one, two. So it's it's just so hard to do with a straight face.
1: It's hard to do it without sounding cheesy. Yeah, exactly.
0: But yeah, so these are three great videos that you can check out. And it gives you a good glimpse, a good cross-section of Billy and the band, too, from 86 and 87. And of course, there are the Russia shows, and we devoted a whole episode to that. And then Bradley gave us some... Fantastic behind-the-scenes information about that as well. So definitely go back and check out those two episodes if you haven't already.
1: Okay, I just found something that blew my mind that is like holy small world. I know somebody who's listed in the thank yous, and I had no idea. Okay, wow.
0: Okay, and this is in Root Beer Rag in the program he's talking about. In
1: the program, yeah, because it has a list that says the band would like to thank. And the first name is Doug Buttleman at Yamaha. Doug Bottleman has been managing the Verve Pipe since like 1994. Oh, that's cool. I vaguely remember that he used to work for Yamaha. I've known Doug for years. And like I said, he's managed the band through most of their career. And he's the first person uh, thanked in here, which is pretty crazy. One thing that should be noted, Chainsaw, this was still during his days as a truck driver. Because that's what he's listed as. His photo's in here too. But uh, yeah, he was a truck driver before he was a guitar tech.
0: So that's our review of the bridge tour in 1986 through 1987, including the legendary dates in Russia. We learned a lot, I think even literally as we were recording this, you know, going through that program. You really had a lot of fun putting
1: a lot of things into context as well. Typically tour programs are mostly photos and some crew credits, but this really has a lot of really great in-depth interviews about what went into this tour. There's a whole lot more in here that we didn't tap into. So if you find a cheap copy on eBay, I would recommend snagging it up because it's a good read. So now, of course,
0: it's your turn. Uh, as we mentioned in our last episode, we talked about how a lot of people's first concerts were in 84. And I'd really love to know how many of you all got to see him in 86 and 87. And, you know, knowing what we know now If you did see them back then, I'm curious to know if you had picked up on any of these production aspects, you know, like the sleek stage design, the fact that there weren't a lot of keyboards on stage, stuff like that. You know, did it make a difference? Were you behind the stage or on the side and you were like, hey, man, I could see people a whole lot better this time around.
1: Did you notice the heavy use of blue and purples to tie into the album cover with Doug's bass and Liberty's drums? They were really tying into that album so subtly, and I wonder if any of you picked up on that.
0: Yeah, and you know, if you haven't seen them or if you really haven't checked out this story yet, I'll tell you what, just figuring out what we figured out tonight, I want to go back and watch at least the Philadelphia show again. You know, sort of knowing what I know now, so I would highly recommend checking those out again. You know, as we've said, it's not a strongest album, but it's a pretty cool tour. There's some interesting stuff to check out, especially if you're into the gear.
1: This being the last tour with the classic Lords of 52nd Street. So it's pretty special in that way, because after this tour ended, everybody but Liberty moved on. And it was great to see everyone on stage together one last time here.
0: Yeah, so I would highly recommend checking those out. You know, as we've said, it's not a strongest album, but it's a pretty cool tour. There's some interesting stuff to check out, especially if you're into the gear and the behind-the-scenes stuff. There's a lot to digest here, especially knowing that now it's really something to look back on and check it out. Especially the MTV one where you have the members of the band on there talking and things like that.
1: So send us an email. We'd love to hear your emails and we love reading them on the show and responding to them. And it's so much fun to hear your input and insights. You can reach us at glasshousespodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you're into the whole social media thing, connect with us there. We'd love your comments and your thoughts there as well.
0: And if you listen to us on Apple podcast, please remember to give us that five-star review and positive rating. Every five-star review indicates to Apple that they should put us in front of more people. And so it's a great and easy way for you to lend us some support and help us grow our community.
1: Well put, my friend. <laughs> so with that, we're going to sign off for now. We will see you next time. Thanks again, as always.